Hello, welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. In this episode, we talk to Mark Fitzpatrick. Mark is an animal rights and vegan activist originally from Cork and now based in New Zealand, where he is on the board of the Vegan Society of Aotearoa. We discuss Mark's politicisation in the anarcho-punk scene in Cork in the late 1980s, his involvement in Hunt's Habitat in Ireland and the UK, his perspective on the animal rights movement and its relationship with the left, and his newly launched website project to document the history of animal rights in Ireland, The Humanity Trigger, which you'll find at thehumanitytrigger.com. If you are or were involved in animal rights in Ireland and can contribute information to the history of that movement, you can contact Mark about the project by email at markhumanity at thehumanitytrigger.com. Listeners can also hear Mark discuss Hunt's sabotage and the police response in more detail on episode 17 of the Police Podcast from February 2021. You'll find the Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. We welcome your feedback on the podcast and on the project generally. Um, you can contact us via the website uh, or send us an email to contact at leftarchive.ie. Uh, you'll also find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks to Mark for taking the time to talk to us and thank you for listening. Mark, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to come on the podcast. You're welcome. Um, so can, to open, could you tell us a bit about how you got involved in activism initially and what led you into that? Sure. Okay. I've been thinking about this question and the best answer I can come up with is, is that I was introduced to politics uh, surreptitiously via comics, particularly 2000 AD and particularly the scripts written by Pat Mills and Alan Moore. I don't know if you're familiar with this yeah. whole thing at all, but I was really into comics as a kid. So the, the, the Beano, the Dandy when I was very young, and then it evolved into the more action sort of pack thing. So via the pages of, of scripts like Meltdown Man and Nemesis the Warlock, which is basically a, a, an expose of the Catholic Church, really, when you, when you look back at it. Charlie's War, which I don't think was in 2000 AD, it was in battle, I think. Yeah, but that was a, a sort of a critique, essentially, of the class system in in the UK and war itself, and and specifically uh, the First World War. So it was sort of being presented. It was it was being sneaked in underneath the censors' eyes, right, and my parents' eyes, which were uh, the, the censors as well. Yeah. It was being sneaked into into a very conservative country, and um, basically they, they they were breeding a generation of anarchists, and they knew what they were doing because I've 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 uh, listened to interviews with Alan Moore and Pat Mills and Grant Robinson, I think, is, is the Scottish guy who did all the Batman stuff uh, mm. later on. And, and they were essentially saying, yes, we, 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 we were punk anarchists then and we were really into animals and we didn't like the police and authority and all that. And we were, we were expressing this via uh, fantasy stories. Mm. So instead of having the, the, the Catholic Church um, invading a country of... of of uh, brown people or something like that, you you would you would have um, uh, the human race invading other planets of aliens, and and the, and the, the whole thing sort of at the time when I was 10, 11, 12, it, I, I I didn't see it along those lines, right? I was I was I was looking at the artwork and the sort of the mm. violence and all the rest of the things that a boy at that age is sort of interested in. Uh, it was only later, looking back, sort of ten or twenty years later, that I realised, hey, th- this this is where the first so the nebulous ideas came from, right? This is how I was introduced to, to these ideas that they were refined when I was in my mid-teens via the anarcho-punk movement. So when I was introduced to crass and conflict and I was reading their voluminous lyric sheets and the books and pamphlets that they came with and all the rest of it, it really solidified and crystallized what had been in, 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 introduced to my 
into my brain years earlier um, via these comics. So that's where it first came from. I, I wasn't brought up in a political household or in a household that, that considered itself to be political. It was political because it conformed to all the mainstream Irish ideas and isms. So it, mm -hmm. it, and part of that ism is to not uh, see it as as being an ism, but as being just a, a natural order of things. Right. This is the way the mainstream sort of do themselves that they are not political, but we are. Um, so my dad didn't consider himself to be a political thinker at all, but he, but he hated the IRA and he hated Sinn Féin and he loved the Pope and, you know, all, all, all the sort of re regular uh, lower middle class ideas and notions, tick, 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 you know. So it, it, it was it was via the outside world, really, uh, ideas coming from the UK, which, you know, is, is sort of ironic, really. <laughs> Irish, English status and all that, but it was the ideas, actually, they're, they're uh, mainly coming from Scotland. Uh, it's where mm. the where the people lived and where the, the comic was printed. It was actually all done up in Dundee. Mm. So all these ideas coming from Scotland uh, infiltrated a generation's minds and sowed all these seeds. And the, this sort of prospered then when you had something cohesive and structural like the anarcho-punk movement sort of came along and formulated these ideas and gave them names mm. and introduced targets and uh, the the notion of of DIY, which was essential to yeah. the punk movement, because it had to be, because no one else was going to do it. So, so if if you wanted to see it done, then it had to be you, because there was literally no one else around to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you if you wanted to see something happen, the only person there was you and your friends, you know. So um, that was the that was my my first introduction. Really, was comics and then punk. Do do you see the punk movement similarly with the comics that that that? politics was smuggled in through it or did you feel that that was i think it was a, it was a lot more blatant and and mm -hmm. overt right i think the uh, beauty of the sort of comic thing was that it could it could it could be uh, uh slipped past the uh, the r sensors and and parental guidance really and it was you know so the the beauty of that was that it was it was, it was sort of subtle really mm -hmm. uh, punk then was was uh, very necessary to sort of uh put these ideas into sort of into a, a clearer picture, really. Um, they were quite different. I think punk was deliberately, or the anarcho-punk movement was deliberately antagonistic and aggressive and uh, high profile. Um, whereas the comic thing was very subtle. Sure. So you're, um, you're, you're approaching it in, as this is an explicitly political um, yes, expression am, rather yeah. than say just attracted to it aesthetically or... Right. So what I would say, is, yeah. So uh, when I was um, prior to my interest in anarcho punk, I was really in, into Iron Maiden and Metallica and the sort of thrash metal thing and all that. Mm. And I remember, I, I remember the 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 day clearly. I was I was sitting in class. I must have been about thirteen or fourteen in Douglas Community School, and I was talking to a friend of mine who's fr who who had a friend who was getting really into punk and. People were talking about him because he was act, he was acting quite strangely. He he wasn't eating meat anymore, and he, and he and he wouldn't sit on a couch. He was made out of leather, and uh, stuff like this. And he he was he was sort of a, a bit of an, an oddity. And I I ended up talking to him, and I I, I was saying to him, look, in terms of music, I'm into Iron Maiden and Metallica and Anthrax and stuff. But the the music's good, but the the lyrics are all about you know. Judge Dread or, or Monsters or Satan or something, you know, it's, it's a bit boring, basically. And I was, you know, so, 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 the, so the guy I was talking to was, was listening to this and he goes, oh, 
I know exactly what, what you're looking for. The following day, he had brought in all of Crass's back catalogue wow. and a conflict album called The Ungovernable Force. I don't know if you if you're yeah. familiar with this, this album at all. It's it's a it's an amazing album. And that was the first album. That was the first punk I ever heard. I'd never I'd never heard Sex Pistols. Really? I'd never I'd never heard the crap the act the in Clash. Uh, I didn't have an old an older brother, mm. so I or, or a sister to to introduce me to to this mm. stuff. So the the um, house I was in it was all Irish country, right? So you know Irish country, right? Yeah. Which is even wor worse than country and western. It's its own specific type of yeah. thing, and it's horrible. <laughs> so the 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 exposure I had to him to him to music was was this really, you know. So it was very limited. And so the first punk I heard was was Conflict's on Gold Force album. That is just wow. this furious delivery mm. of it's it's so fast, it's it's and so intense and uh, full of swear words and and deep political thought as well, mm. you know, and very, very um chaotic sounding, but brilliant. It sort of mm. hung together and aesthetically the music to it, I was hooked straight away. I mean, if right. if, if I hadn't got into the music, then the Lyrics would have been interesting. The aesthetics around it would would have been interesting, but yeah. I wouldn't have got, have a got a, got into it at all. It it, it it isn't for everyone, but if if it's your sort of thing, it it just, it just blew me away, and it still does. That that that, that specific album it it resonated so much with me, and the 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 the, the time it was put out, it was around the time of the the Thatcher, obviously the minor mm. strike, and all the rest of it. So it was a very belligerent time in Britain, and this album really seemed to reflect. Uh, the band's opinion on this and the time that they were growing up in perfectly. And looking back and comparing it to something like the Sex Pistols or the Clash, the Sex Pistols sound really tame in comparison to this. Mm. The, the, this was a, a mixture of thrash metal, actually, and punk. Yeah. So it was, it was where the two of these things collide. It wasn't the sort of pub punk that you sort of hear in the uh, late 70s. It was this whole, it was an extra speed. Sort like of hardcore, band. It was basically. A, a sort of like hardcore, but it wasn't as flat as hardcore. Yeah. Uh, hardcore is it's tends to be a little bit uh dare i say it boring really it's, right. it's very fast and furious and yeah. delivered with, with amazing passion but it, but it can sound, sound really samey mm. um conflict seemed to ride the sort of uh, bridge uh, the bridge the gap between uh ver, ver, very tuneful and melodic but also really furious yeah. and the yeah. the music really reflected the the lyrics which is the first time i ever heard that so i I had been exposed to like John Byers and Bob Dylan and stuff like mm. that uh, a few years earlier, and I really liked the sort of sentiment and the and and the idea around them. But the music seemed to really lack punch, right? Yeah. And then conflicts came along and delivered lyrics that really matched the music and vice versa. And that was the first yeah. time I really heard that, I think. And yeah, I was captivated from that point. And on. and the other side, I think I think of conflicts and crass rudimentary piano. I mean, like the album covers themselves were They're amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, they were really, really amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, that's it's one of the things that really drew me to metal first. The album work by Derek Briggs for Iron Maiden was was mm. is fantastic stuff. And that's mm. what drew me to that. And it really reflected what, what, what you would hear in, inside the album itself. Yeah. And the uh, uh, album covers for uh, Crass particularly, they, 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 all, they all look like collages. They're actually all gouache and ink paintings. They're all paintings. Wow. And they're, they, 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 the actual originals are a huge big things on on a, on canvas so yeah uh the the the, uh, the anarcho-punk aesthetic was very particular all black mm. all black and white and stencil yeah. and uh very stark and very graphic and mm. um provoking yeah. um but it, it was a real it, it sort of delivered this whole way a uh, system of thinking 
Um, like it wasn't just the music, it wasn't just the lyrics, there was art there as well, there was a fashion there, there was there was a whole sort of system of thought there that was sort of wrapped up in this in this album product, but you know, it meant so much more as well, you know. Did did you get into the fanzines then at that stage? And yeah, yeah. So 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 when I was in my later teens then and formed I was in the, the bands I was in in Cork and we we had a we had a fanzine called Nay Nay and Thrice Nay, and then issue yeah. two was called Crash Bang and Thrice Wallop and I think there wasn't any issue three, but yeah, this is this is just before the internet, right? So in the early nineties, ninety two, ninety three, so the internet was around maybe, but it wasn't popular or common. And mm. um, so the, this was the last gasp, really, of the sort of hard copy, actual thing to hold fanzine yeah. communication. So fanzines were were a form of Google, you know, or yeah. internet. It was a way of communicating. It was it was giving you something to do. It was giving you a creative outlet it was it was allowing you to interview bands like Chumbawamba and they'd send but you'd send them off a list of questions and they'd send back answers you know and then you'd put on the on the front of your thing interview with Chumbawamba it's this was before Chumbawamba were really big you know yeah but uh, yeah it was it was a way of of uh connecting with other people in the scene it was a really fun thing to do it sounds like in a sense it was its own little ecology or quite yeah. a big ecology and and do you, mm. do you think it had a self-reinforcing effect in that sense yeah, we, we were a bit Puritan. Um, mm. we, we were very dismissive of everyone else, mm. uh, as teenagers are, as I think we needed to be to mm. convince ourselves that we, we were right and to yeah. carry on doing what we were doing. We needed to have a black and white, I'm right, and in out group sort of group think as well. Um, it, was an, it, was an, it was inevitable, it was unfortunate. It was also helpful in in a defining the movement as its own thing and separate from everything else. Right. Um, it was it was also enforced upon us by outside, by by society outside. We we were sort of uh, rejected because the music was was considered to be incomprehensible yeah. uh, and un, and unlistenable. And the ideas that we were that we were thinking about and really interested in, like feminism and and class and animals, were 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 considered to be. Her, uh, heretic thought really yeah. so it, it was it was the thing that we were we were glad to be separate from and society was glad to separate it from us as well i think you know it was a mutually agreeable sort of separation coming back to the, i mean cork being cork i mean cork had its own music scene scenes mm. plural i mean yeah but uh, it's a, i always think when i like i would lo- i would have loved micro disney still in a way too but an awful lot of people in cork seemed to get to a certain point and then say right we're off to london like it was sort of yeah. the tug wasn't to dublin at all that the pull was to to it's london nice. and yeah. i wonder like for anarcho punks and I, you'd have been in your late teens at that stage i imagine mm-hmm. were you mm-hmm. was it difficult to kind of find gigs or did you have gigs or, or what did you do like just the logistics of being on the ground there so in terms of, of having gigs and, and putting on gigs from out from outside bands and so on, mm. there was a there was a network of bars of the, and the bar owners were agreeable to the, to where this happening. They weren't into the movement or anything like that. Yeah. But they were but they were into getting people in through the doors, you know. Yeah. So there, there was a, there was a bunch of small bars with with tiny stages but with good PA's, mm. and there was a few sort of mid sized venues like Nazi Spain's, which is gone now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there the, the would so there the, the was a lot of bands would sort of come through. There was a lot of thrash metal and speed metal bands would would have come through and and they and they need a backing band, right. uh, and a backing band that were in, in the similar vein to them. 
and there was very, and there was very few to uh, to choose from. There, there was us and maybe two or three other other bands that were suited to backing a, th a thrash metal band. So so we'd get uh, gigs as uh, as backing bands a bit, or put on our own gigs in in smaller venues, but by approaching the the owner and sort of uh, guaranteeing a small crowd and yeah. um and that was it really. Yeah, it, it was uh, fairly easy at the time. I'm not sure how, how it is now. I haven't been in Ireland for. 26 odd years um but at the time it was fair, there was a small scene but but maybe 20 or 30 people mm. who were involved in the sort of the organizational end of things and putting out fanzines and so on yeah. and then if you put on a good gig you'd get maybe a crowd of up to two or three hundred people in Cork which is all right for a city the size and for, for a yeah. genre as, as exclusive right. as punk really. um so it, it was a small but thriving scene there was, there was a small but really enthusiastic core of people who were just mm. into the whole thing and really mm. took inspiration from what was going on over in over in Britain particularly um and uh, but yeah you, you're right there sort of comes a time in your early 20s when most people then left Cork left Ireland yes uh, mm. I haven't been back since mm. and and that was the death knell of of that really in fact the Ireland has maintained its status quo as successfully as it has by having this safety valve of mm. emigration for it's youth, particularly it's radical youth, because it's mm. it can be so suffocatingly conservative there, or it used to be at times, that you just couldn't wait to get out of the place, you know, and um go to London where there was there was this, this freedom, you know. Um and freedom from the Catholic Church and the, this mindset that you were surrounded by in Ireland during the eighties, uh, certainly. I know the place has changed an, an awful lot since I've been gone. Yeah, yeah, incomparable. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a, it's it's a different country, yeah. right? But it is um, the yeah, yeah. But it was, it was definitely suffocating is a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, one, one that, this is legit, again, a technical question. Did you, like, I knew people in Dublin who were, like, I, it wasn't, I wasn't exactly, uh, it wasn't quite where I was at, but I mean, you know, they would put stuff out on cassette tapes and stuff like that. Did you do that? Yeah. Violent phobia and We used to do, yeah. So, so, yeah. so we did a, de a demo tape in a proper studio and everything, you know, and, wow. uh, Put out a demo tape and sold it at gigs and through Comet Records, which I oh, think there was are in Dublin as well, aren't they? Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, they shut down. So yeah, oh, all right, did they? Are, I think are they gone? Five, yeah, I think five or seven, six years ago. Okay, right. I suppose inevitably. Uh, so yeah, we'd we'd uh, put out demo tapes. Uh, Dublin had a bigger scene, obviously, because it's it's ten times bigger than Cork, and mm. had a really good scene. There, there was a collective there called Hope Collective, who used to oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Nine work and, and yeah. them. And so okay. there was the Hope Collective. There was the Paranoid Visions Chaos Crew, mm. right? And there were two separate sort of almost um, expressions of punk in a way. One was yeah, more completely, yeah. free drinking cider and maybe getting into fights a bit more yeah. than the Hope Collective. Yeah. Uh, given the name Hope, you know, were, yeah. were, I think there was a lot of straight edge there and they were, they were a bit more organized, you know, and yeah. put on some really good gigs. They're still, they're still kind of going kind of. They are still yeah. sort of going, and they yeah. and they managed to put out an EP um, during the mid '90s, and mm. so it, it it took a scene as big and as organised and as relatively resourceful as Dublin's to even put out an EP. Then you know yeah. it was it was a, it was a very hard thing to do in the DIY scene to, to put out anything more uh, complicated than a demo tape. Really, yeah. you know, I mean, it would be a good quality demo tape, mm. but it, you know, a, an actual vinyl album was a, was a very rare thing to be able to produce. Really. It was quite expensive to do and, and um, quite hard with distribution and you were guaranteed to lose money and all that. 
So the way that they would do it is that they would get maybe four bands to do a few songs on each side. So you'd have a four band EP, each band playing three songs to, to make up six songs on each side. And each band had maybe four or five members in it. And between all of them and the Hope Collective putting in money together, they could afford to, to print maybe a thousand or two thousand vinyl EPs. And if they made a loss, it wasn't too bad because it was spread out among so many people. So it, it was that level of input required to produce an EP. I'm sure these days, I mean, it's so much easier now. Everything has been revolutionized with technology and all that. It is so much easier and cheaper to do this. But there was a real, it really it was a real bonding aspect to, to all of this. It was quite hard to, to print these things and to put these things out and to organize gigs and to keep mm -hmm. safety at gigs and all the rest of it. So it, it, was, it, was, it was a great way of bonding and getting to know people and to build up a cohesive, friendly, uh, capable scene. So I left Cork, uh, went to Limerick for three years, 1990 to 93. Uh, went to Edinburgh for about six months. Hmm. And that was where I did my first ever Hunsat, was with the right. Edinburgh Hunsat tours. And then I moved back to Galway for three years and got straight in, in, involved in the animal rights, tiny animal rights movement there. And yeah. we set up our own Hunsat group and, you know, and so on. Yeah. Um, and for, for three years that, yeah, so I was, I was very involved in the Galway animal rights scene, who we were a branch of uh, the Alliance for Animal Rights. So right. we, were, we were working with them, with Bernie Wright and so on. Uh, and then I left to do my nurse training uh, in uh, North London uh, right. in 1996 and got involved in the Hunt Saboteurs there, which was a very different scene because it was, it was much more evolved and mature and had been going for about 30 years at that point. Mm. And the initial spasms that you were getting over in Ireland from the hunting community, as in them kicking the shit out of you for turning up and doing what you were doing, they, they, they'd gone through all that in the uh, UK in the 70s yeah. and come out the other side. And the end result of that, if you if you keep on sabbing them. So what happened was <laughs> the um, saboteurs would would go, would go out this is in the late 60s and the 1970s. In, initially, the, the hunt did, didn't know who they were or what they were doing. Mm. And then after a few weeks of this happening, they realized because there was press statements going out and they, and they realized, right, that there's an organized campaign of sabotage, of sa sabotage being focused on us. We, we, we have to react. Mm. Being who they are, their, their reaction was ultra violence, right? Of course, it's going to be. You're out in, the, out, out in the middle of nowhere. There's no CCTV around. This is during the, this is during the 1970s anyway. Mm. There's no cops around. It's you and them. And you're fucking up their fun. And they hate you for that. Yeah. And you're there with pink hair and all the rest of it. They, they hate everything about you, you know? So the inevitable reaction, the saboteurs had the shit kicked out of them. The initial response, formally and informally, was to either run away or to curl up into a ball and take the kicking, right? And this was the state of affairs initially. And then along came sort of a harder edge to the Hunt Saboteur movement via Ronnie Lee, who set up the ALF later. And his and his group's approach was, if they lay a finger on us, we will swarm them with violence. We will so overreact and shock them that they won't do it again. So they did. And there was a, there was a upping the ante of violence, counter-violence, violence, counter-violence. And then after a few months of this, the, um, the uh, one particular hunt, which is the hunt that I went on to sab in the, in the mid-90s, in the mid, the mid but back in the 70s, they, they're, they're being hard hit because they were close to London there was, and there's there lots of activists in London. So every week they were getting stabs. So they set up their own security firm called, called Countryside Management. And it was made up of off-duty squaddies and local NF skinheads, basically, right? 
who were eager and being paid to kick the shit out of the hippies, right? Right. But there was this going on, and and Ronnie Lee organized uh, um, a, a sab against this this particular hunt. But every saboteur that was invited along was was a martial arts expert, right? So they arrived on on mass in these cars, right? And as soon as they're and and they're arriving into into the village that the hunter meeting at, mm. and the and the countryside management security people, and you and you should see these these uh, photographs of these guys. They're all skinheads with bomber jackets with a little thing here is saying countryside management they're they're, they're, they're like bouncer types right mm. but they're mm-hmm. all racist skinheads or squaddies right and they're and they're dying to to, to, to have a go at the uh, saboteurs but they didn't know that that all the saboteurs were trained in martial arts so they come down to the vehicles as, as the as the cars are driving in full of the crafty trained sabs as they're driving into the village and they're met by all, all these uh, securities that have started to shake the the, the car from side to side and they open the door to try and drag him out to, to kick each other and they mm-hmm. open a car door and this 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 leg this foot comes flying out and just chins one into the it, uh, well, one of one of the one of the security into the face and they all pile out and they kick the shit out of all the security and they throw him into a ditch and then they leave and the uh, message was uh, very clear if if you continue to attack us we will attack you back with more violence than, than, than you've ever seen and it worked it, it, mm-hmm. it leveled the playing field and from that point on around that point on the hunting community and the police realize that uh, the saboteurs aren't, aren't going to go away. And if we try and scare them off, it's bad press for us. And they come yeah. back at us twice yeah. as strong and all the rest of it. It's drawing more, more and more attention to us. So we'll try and ignore them. Hmm. So by the time I, I got there in the mid-90s, I, I'd, I'd crawled out of the trench lines of the of the hunt saboteurs in Ireland thing, right? Having, having experienced the sort of rough end of things there hmm. and went into hmm. a very... Like opening the door into a sort of a paradise, uh, paradise of 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 hunt sabotage, where the hunters sort of afraid of you and they leave you alone and they ignore you and they avoid eye contact and they try and get away from you as soon as you go near them. Mm. So the way of sabotaging then it was a it was a very peaceful affair. Some of the hunts knew some of the saboteurs by name and would sort of uh, address them by by a name in a sort of a polite way. Um, some of the saboteurs used to used to open a fence like if if the hunt were trying to get into a field that open a fence for, 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 the, for, for the hunt to, to, to allow them in. It was all very weird and civil. And oh, I was really confused Ritualistic almost. Almost, they, 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 they'd been at it for so long. Yeah. And they yeah. knew each other at this point. They were, they, were, they were personal enemies, but they had a respect sort of almost for each other. And they knew to, enough to leave each other alone. And it was bad news if either, if either side got violent. If the saboteurs get violent, everyone gets arrested. Yeah. If the hunt gets yeah. violent, it's bad press, even though None of them will will, will, will get arrested, but it's 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 bad press for them. They they're very eager to main, to maintain this image of uh, genteel uh, upper class sort of um, presentation, you know, and that, yeah. and that they aren't yeah. violent people. They aren't being cruel to animals. This is all part of the wonderful cycle of life, and isn't it great? And this is a celebration of man in 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 their nature and all that, you know. Where the reality is, they're violent thugs, um, but they but they hate when that veil is pulled down from them. When you find um, yourself starting to organise uh, hunt sabotage in Galway, you had some previous experience in Edinburgh. So were you able to draw on the UK experience that having started much earlier? Yeah, um, or were you kind of trying to work out, I mean, even just the practicalities of how do you go about sabotaging a hunt? Were you How do you sabotage? Yeah, yeah. Were you starting uh, from scratch? Or? We were pretty much starting from scratch. So, so the, the, the one fox hunt sabotage that I'd attended, attended outside Edinburgh we barely saw the hunt, right? The the hunt, uh, similar to the to the Vale of Aylesbury that I was sabotaging a few years later, 
as soon as you you that turn up, they they move on to the next copse of of, of trees where they think a fox is going to be. So, so so their tactic was to not get sabotaged by not being near you all all the, all the time. So we were sort of kept a step behind them. So so, so they so we no uh, the uh, first time I did uh, I I didn't really see the hunt. I didn't really any see any sabotage happening because of mm. the nature of of that particular day. A few weeks later, uh, myself and a friend hitched down to Newcastle to attend a week-long SAB of uh, uh, Open Hair Coursing um, World Cup, basically. So Open Hair Coursing is very similar to Park Hair Coursing, which still happens over in Ireland, where the hair is inside of a, inside of an, an enclosed area and can't get out. Right? That's, that's Park Hair Coursing. Open Hair Coursing is where they, where hunters on foot uh, lead, a, lead a pack of dogs um, um, after hares uh, out in the open countryside, so they aren't enclosed. So it's like fox hunting, except their their target animal is a hare, uh, and the and the hunter uh, and the hunt aren't on horseback; they're on foot. So it's more working class. It's it's a working class type of fox hunting. Is is, is what it, it is really. So um, there was the the national cup there in Sunderland every year, um, of the open hare coursing sort of uh, like a festival. And it was huge, and there was hundreds of people. that would come from Canada, Australia, New Zealand, all over the UK, Ireland, and all this to to attend this. And it would it was to sort of happen over a huge big area of countryside, uh, and it was basically like a pack of dogs being set after a hare. So we so we attended that. There was about three there was about three hundred sabs, <clears throat> and every day we would we would get up about seven in the morning and drive in dozens of transit vans out to where the hunt was because it was it was in a, it was in a different area of the same general area mm. every day it would it would go on for five days the um the approach there was because it was it was so heavily uh, uh secure they had a ring of squaddies ex-squaddies just uh, uh part of uh, off-duty squaddies from a nearby army base they they they'd, they'd employ them to stand around in a huge big circle like miles in diameter to stop us from getting inside the circle to sabotage the hunt so what 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 we did the first day was uh, get, get up really early and anticipate where the hunt were going to start from and hid up in trees so when the security came along at dawn they didn't know that we were that, that we were already inside this this cordon up in trees hiding right so they so they formed a big huge cordon expecting us to be arriving on the outside of that a few hours later not knowing that we were in the, on the inside as soon as the hunt started we sort of dropped down from the trees and blowing horns and laying down the false sense for the rest of it and then the the the, the security with that come in and and they're 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 legally allowed to escort you off the land uh to to reasonably escort you off the land because you you're on private land and you're and you're disrupting a lawful activity that's aggravated trespass uh, legally so they're allowed to to ask you to leave and if you don't leave then they escort you off the land but of course it's there's there's no one around to police this right and it's it's dawn in in the countryside somewhere outside newcastle so of course there was there was loads of violence and people uh, getting into fights and refusing to leave and then being dragged off and so on and then for the next the uh, from, from then on after that for the next four days we uh, didn't get a chance to get into the cordon like we did the first time but but we maintained a presence outside the uh the the um this the security cordon basically putting pressure onto the organizers of the hunt um, that they would need to have this level of security if they wanted to engage in their practice w- without us sabotaging it, and it was it was costing them eleven thousand pounds a day. This was back in the mid nineties, so as a, a substantial sum. 
in in a mm. security alone. So over the week, it cost them about 60K in security to keep us from stopping their fund. So they, they actually went bust th- that year. They, they couldn't afford to do, to, do, to do it again the following year. So simply by being there and putting the pressure of the of our potential on them and mm. uh, necessitating them to get loads of security and bankrupted them. So sabotage can happen in, in lots of different forms. There is mm. direct sabotage where you lay down false scents or uh, blow horn calls, whatever. And there is sort of, other tiers of sabotage we can just put on pressure and make it uncomfortable and, and expensive for them we we we, we up the price for, for them so the, uh, groups like the alf and the hans was and earth first and the sea shepherd and all that they up the price on nature so when someone comes in and says i, c- I can destroy this forest or i can destroy this animal and it's not going to cost me anything we create a cost yeah right financially or morally or socially we, we create an outrage, we create cost for them to do this. So it's less attractive for them to do that. The more cost that we can create for them, the less likely they are to go ahead with whatever nefarious plans that they have. So it's uh, as a small movement, you uh, need to think along these lines that it, it's, it's never going to be a big movement, or I used to think that it was never going to be a big movement, then along comes climate change. But mm. um, during the 80s and 90s, uh, it was a tiny, tiny movement of highly committed individuals mm. who tactically approached individual organizations or um, uh, problems and tried to dismantle them using the resources that we had rather than what we wished we had and try and and try to build a mass movement which we never thought would would be possible. In terms of um, when you I mean when you started engaging in uh, Hunt Sabotage were you part of a wider anarchist milieu was there other political activism alongside that or was it quite sort of simply uh, focused then? Or? It was mainly focused on that. So so, no, so, so when I moved to a Galway, there was a, there was a small group there. They used to do a, a weekly stall on Shop Street, on the main street there, just handing mm-hmm. out leaflets. And we used to pick up the, uh, we used to, we used to pick up the, the McDonald's as well mm-hmm. and put up posters and all that. So it was basically an, an outreach sort of in, in, information sort of project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came along, I, I, was, I was really keen on sabotaging hunts. Um, and and bringing that tactic uh, into 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 the republic, and coincidentally and luckily enough, it was it was also beginning to happen in Dublin as well, and mm. it had been happening up in the up in the, up in the north of Ireland for about three or four years prior to this. This is, this is in 1995 or so. Mm. Um, so what what me and a few friends from Galway did was uh, get the bus over to Dublin and participate in in, in a few sabs there. And the uh, and the saboteurs there had had uh, picked up skills from going up to Belfast and sabotaging there. So it was yeah. sort of a mutual schooling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a weekend where a few a few of the experienced sabs from Belfast, uh, David Nelson and a few other guys who had served prison time for ALF offences previous, mm. and and were now saboteurs. And they came down. There was a weekend seminar where, where they taught us. The, the ropes and how to deal with aggression and police and the inevitable response you will have and the practicalities of sabotaging a fox hunt sabotaging a fox hunt it, fox hunting is the is the most skilled of all the different types of hunting right and mm-hmm. um, it it, it, re- it requires the most skill from the hunter than than uh, bird shooting or fishing or like that okay so the the skill of it is is having experienced dogs having a a spearhead of hounds right about 30 or 40 hounds at the tip of the spear the first half of the hounds are older experienced hounds who are leading 
the second half of the spear who are younger pup hounds who haven't been blooded yet or if they have they're, they're only new to the game so the hand, the dogs they use are beagle, Snoopy type dogs, and they, and they aren't they aren't naturally inclined to uh, chase down and kill hares or foxes. They they need to be blooded. Hmm. The way they're blooded is that they're they're uh, they're uh, they they're put after uh, fox cubs during the cubbing season. So around August time, they're sent out to uh, to hunt down young fox cubs so that, so that they get the uh, blood for 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 chasing them in the future so right so the it's sort of hard to explain but so what the skill of it is what the the huntsman skill is being able to control the pack of hounds so that they maintain a sort of spearhead, spearhead uh, formation and they go from mm-hmm. field to field scaring any animals in front of them mm. out into the open so they'll flush them they'll flush this formation of dogs through a, a wood or a copse of trees hoping that any animal in there particularly a fox will scurry out the other end because he's trying to get away from the hounds that are coming through one side and will be seen by uh, uh, pointers, they're, they're, they're called, who are part of the, the hunting team and they will point to where the fox is and then the chase is on and then everyone starts to chase the fox and you have 40 or 50 guys on horseback, you have 40 or 50 dogs, you have a dozen stabs, you have maybe a few cops all descending in wonder on, on one animal basically with, with a different motives in mind but it, it's it goes from being really quiet to sudden complete chaos and and the dogs are all yelping they're going on cry and the horns are going and we're shouting and fights are breaking out perhaps or scuffles and as the security try to stop us from getting down this lane or whatever cars have been used to block roads we're doing that they're doing that you know uh it's so um so the the, the skill for the saboteur was to is, is to mimic the voice calls and the horn calls that the main hunter uses to control the hounds in order to get the hounds to go your way rather than the hunter's way. So to be able to blow a hunting horn properly is actually a very hard thing to do. So for, for what we did, we, we, had a, we had a tape recording of the, the sound of the hounds on cry. When they're on cry, they're all doing this yelping, very excited yelping. They, they've smelled quarry. And they're in pursuit of this quarry and they're shouting basically they're doing the dog version of shouting they're all they're all doing it at the same time so there's 20 or 30 dogs all yelping that's the dogs being on cry so if you get a recording of that and play that recording through uh, a megaphone the hound, the actual hounds in the distance will assume that the, the sound of the hounds on cry is coming from actual hounds coming from over there and they've smelled a quarry so so let's all go over to where that sound is coming from, and we'll chase that quarry as well. So, if you picked enough, if, if you pick the right sort of position, a bit of an elevated spot, a bit of a hill overlooking where the where, where the hunter, and turn on the gizmo and hold it up into the sky, all the hounds immediately they just you can see them from from like a, a mile or two away. They will just turn around and come right towards you, and then they'll get to you, expecting to see a fox or tons of other dogs tearing apart a fox or something, and they come up and see a bunch of crusties and hippies holding a. A gizmo thing you know and they're going where's the fox where's the other dogs and then they're really confused and then it takes ages for the, for the for the hunt to call them all back together again get them into 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 formation and get them going in the in the direction the hunt wants them to go and and they only have daylight to, to uh, do this in so in ireland during the hunting season it's during it's during winter so it gets dark at the west of ireland you know three or four o'clock in the afternoon so they only have till about two or three to do the hunting so if you can su- successfully confuse the hounds for, for the hours of daylight, then they have to pack up before it gets actually dark and then they go home and then you've won. So 
the actual technique of sabotage, it, it's fairly straightforward when you describe it, but to be able to do it effectively, you, you would need to be able to imitate the, the, the particular huntsman's specific uh, voice calls that, that he has bred his dogs to be tuned into. Um, or you use a gizmo. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you can really fuck up their day. I mean, it, it's like, it's the equivalent of, of running onto a soccer pitch and taking the ball and hiding it, or th actually throwing out a load of balls onto a soccer pitch and the hunts or the players aren't sure which, which is the real ball to, to play with, you know? So in, in, in terms of the law, it's, it's, it's legal to do this, mm. um, depending on where you're doing it. Uh, and depend. So if, if you're on private land doing this, then the owner of that land can ask you to leave and can escort you off the land if, if you refuse to leave. But he, but he can't stop you from blowing the horn. The, the, a fox is a wild animal. It isn't owned by anyone. The hunt are legally allowed to ch chase it down and, and set dogs on the poor thing. We're legally, we're legally allowed to blow horns and act in the same way as the hunt and control the dogs as well. There isn't a law stopping that unless you're doing it on, on someone's land and then it becomes a civil matter because you're, because, because you're trespassing, not because you're sabotaging a hunt. Right. So you can go out there and you can drive and you can stay on the country lanes and you can stand on the top of a car and use your gizmo and sabotage the hunt and confuse the hounds and fuck up their day. And the police can't do anything about that right. because you weren't breaking any laws. Yeah. So if yeah. you play your cards right, uh, you can usually get away with it. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the response of the hunt itself is a different thing altogether and they aren't playing by any rules and, and, it's, and, 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 the, and you really piss them off. So violence is inevitable and is endemic in this sort of thing. But if you hold your ground, they will back off because they're bullies and they think that they can scare you off. And when they realize that they can't, they generally back down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is my experience. You've, you've given accounts on Dr. Vicky Conway's podcast, Policed, of just how hard edged that can actually get. And it's, it's yeah, kind of cool. harrowing, to be honest, listening yeah. to your description of it. In terms of hunting in Ireland, um, how embedded has it been, would you say? Mm. That's a very interesting question, right? Because given Ireland's history, you would think that something like hunting wouldn't be accepted. It would mm. be considered to be part of the English ruling classes. Absolutely. Choice of fun and therefore anathema to any Irishman. You know, you, you would have thought that, that would have been the thinking. They've managed to do, they very successfully, they've managed to secrete themselves into Irish society and act as if they've always been there. Mm. Fox hunting and hair coursing has only been around. It was introduced by uh, ex-British or Irish people who joined the British. It was a British, it was a British pursuit, really. And it was introduced to Ireland during the 1920s by ex-British servicemen returning back to Ireland and they'd seen this happen over in England and they wanted, right. and, and so coursing is a very new thing. Yeah. Um, it's about, wow. you know, it's, it's been around for about a hundred years. Fox hunting in its, in, its, in, its, in its modern form, it's about 200 years old. So mm. these aren't really old traditional Celtic mm. pre-Christian yeah. pursuits. These, these are very new. These are very English establishment um, ideas of fun. So it is amazing to me that that, that, that that they occupy this position where they can they can accuse the saboteurs of being all uh, English and bringing in this new idea when that's exactly what they've done. But it just, just just a few years earlier, basically, you know, yeah. the, 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 the goal of the hunting community is, is something to be believed. They um, a bit like the dairy industry, they've managed to fool so many people that that they are an important part of their lives. And uh 
hunting is a tradition and it's on chocolate boxes and postcards and and all the get up with the red coats and jollipers and all the rest of it mm. it's 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 a pageant and um it's basically a type of dressed up barbarism really i mean it's 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 setting uh dogs on on mm. other mammals um yeah. that, that aren't naturally inclined to do this uh they're they're training dogs to to tear apart these other animals that it's so uh unnatural and um the whole thing is so imported and re- and re- and relatively new but if, if you were to listen to the hunting community you think they've been around for thousands of years and that everyone loves them and that if if they were to go tomorrow the countryside would collapse somehow yeah. you know um so they have done a very good propaganda job yeah as a as a form of di- direct action it's interesting um in that you can be effective you can go out and yes. become bamboozled mm-hmm. and you can stop the hunt. and you see the results and a lot yeah. of you know, the rest of the left would probably be jealous of that. I mean, you go down to Shannon, you haven't successfully stopped the war. Do you think that Absolutely. has an effect on, I mean, I suppose it must have an effect on morale within groups or cohesiveness in comparison oh, to absolutely. other um, activist groups? Yes, yeah, I think uh, everything around us really at the time, the, 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 the thing that, that stood out about the animal rights movement, as well as me being naturally drawn to the concerns of mm. this, right? I, I have a natural repugnance to... Uh, seeing anyone, anyone mistreat an animal. If I see a, bur- a bird in a cage, it, it, it's you know, it's just been since I was a small boy. I've always been interested in animals. I'm not, I'm not obsessive. I don't have any pets. I don't know much about the, the biology of these of, of animals and like that. But just a on a on a a feeling level, on a, on a sentimental level, or something. I, I'm very uh, attached to the. Uh, uh, there's a. Mm-hmm. When you consider the lives of a chicken in a factory farm, the, 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 the hell that they go through, it's not so much that animals are killed to be eaten, it's that they're tortured all their lives and then killed and then eaten. They, they have no life at all. And it's that negation of life and life experiences. And just a small digression here, uh, Marxism and, and veganism mm. are actually very, very closely um, ideologically uh, close they're a lot closer than marxists think and have acted like mm. uh, since god knows when um there is a concept uh, marxist concepts uh put up by karl marx um called species being which is the idea and he was he was talking specifically about human beings the way he does alienation and um uh, means of production he he talks about this in in industrial terms and in human terms um, I'd like to expand these Marxist ideas, just step back a little bit more and talk about how it isn't, it isn't just that the working class are alienated from their own labor because of capitalism. The human, race is, the human race has separated itself from nature through industrialization. We, we, we have alienated ourselves from the natural original means of production, which is forests and trees and nature, the cycle of nature. We've alienated ourselves from that by industrializing society. Uh, as well as alienating ourselves from the work that we do through the capitalist system. Um, species being, which, which Marx talked about, he, he was referring to the uh, squashing of human uh, intuitive drives through the factory system, for instance, right? And the way people just work all day and then they come home and, they, and, they're, and they're too tired to do anything else and they, and, and, they, and they never get a chance or an opportunity or the mental space to express themselves for, for who they really are to do art, to learn how to dance, to make music, to whatever, whatever it is. 
this concept of species being that each species has its own being that it wants to express and to become, right? Um, the same can be said about uh, uh, animals, right? Uh, uh, species like uh, a factory farm, the, the most oppressed animal I can think of on the world, on the planet today is probably the factory farm chicken whose feet never touch the ground, they, they never see daylight and they never smell fresh air until the day that they're brought to the slaughterhouse and killed. That's the only time that they see nature. They're killed at 42 days old because if they were left anymore, they're fed so many hormones that their legs wouldn't be able to carry the weight of their bloated bodies and, the, and their legs would break. So they have to kill them then at 42 days old. Uh, otherwise they'll have broken legs and they will, they will die. So. In terms of oppression, I'm totally with Marx and Marxism when he, his critique of capitalism, fantastic, right? Brilliant stuff. Um, if only he had taken a few steps further back and critiqued human interactions with non-human animals as well. Mm. This wasn't a thing in his head. I'm not having a go at Marx for this, but mm. um, what I'm saying is that uh, Marxism has confined itself too narrowly to the human race. It's, it's a human supremacist, um, ide ide ideology, even though it doesn't want, want to think of itself as, a, as an oppressive way of thought. It, it, the whole project of Marxism is of liberation, right? Mm. Is of freedom, mm. as far as I can tell. Right? I, I'm not a Marxist scholar. I haven't read mu mu much, much about Marx, but I am very interested in his analysis of capitalism and so on. Um, the the, the the, the breaking point that the green movement, the animal movement has with the traditional Marxist left has been the intransigence of the Marxist left to uh, accept animals and animal rights into, into their fold. It's always been considered, they, they would see it, they would be no more progressive on this issue than your average, your average conservative would, would I be. Um, which is really unfortunate because of all the, all the isms on the political spectrum, you would think that the left and the far left would have most in common and be, and be most interested in something like animal liberation as they are with uh, human liberation and women's liberation and so on and the working, the emancipation of the working class, they would, they would uh, be naturally inclined towards this. Yeah. Unfortunately, my, my own experience, my limited experience, like anecdotally of chatting with people who consider themselves to be Marxists or traditional communists, mm. they, they were very dismissive of, of animal rights and they didn't quite say it, but you can see that they 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 considered it to be a, a bourgeois, um, niche hobbyist sort yeah. of pastime, right? It, it yeah. wasn't worthy of. We we have a big job to do here. Stop stop bringing this in. It only yeah. confuses things, and it, it's 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 it, it 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 subverts our project here. You know, we we we've 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 got us we've got a society to free. Hmm. Um, so they, by doing that, they the traditional left as powerful as it was at one point it alienated itself from the new generation during the 70s and 80s who had uh, broader concerns mm. who had the same concerns but but also these concerns about the environment which was obviously degrading before our eyes mm. and animal rights uh, see the, the the time for animal rights came during the 70s and 80s and the soundtrack for that movement was the anarcho-punk movement and the two of them really they, they created a bit they created a bit of a ghetto because it was so extreme it was it was always always only going to appeal to a small amount of people but that's all it needed to do and to be honest that's, that's all it was ever going to do and as long as those small group of people acted strategically mm. they could bring these issues from uh, nowhere into prominent uh, uh, places in a in a society 
So, yeah. so now the idea of, of animal rights or, or of taking action on behalf of animals uh, isn't considered to be an outrageous novelty. It's, mm. it's, it's part of the political landscape now. Yeah, and, and that's because of groups like the ALF and the Hunsavs who needed to uh, punch their way through, really. Uh, there, there needed to be aggression, uh, not against people, but there needed to be some sort of firm stance here that we that the issue we were talking about, the, the actions that we were uh, doing about this needed to be proportional to the issue that we were talking about. And the issue we're talking about is massive and it's the biggest moral outrage of our time and it's mm. killing our planet and it's killing us. So we need to we need to take it seriously uh, as, as serious as this issue demands. If we aren't going to take it seriously, no one else is because we're because 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 we're the people who are most concerned and interested in this. So we have to be the example. You made I mean, just I think linking into that, you made a really interesting point prior to recording that in some ways. In from your perspective, things like the anarcho-punk scene and other similar movements, particularly movements which linked into broadly speaking, youth movements, I think we can say that, mm-hmm. fulfilled functions that in previous times would have been taken up by unions and so forth. Yes. And yes. I, I think that's like, that's a re- I think that links in directly with what you're just saying there about the um, issue of animal rights and how that should link in as part of a transformational left project. But also yeah. perhaps you'd like to expand on that as well. The idea of, of how, I mean, maybe it's, um, reducing it down too much but to say almost like these are radicalizing areas which radicalized numbers of people which as you say then gave power motive for us to the idea that 20 30 years later the perception yeah. of animal rights would be radically different particularly in a world with climate change yeah now, yeah you know not just climate change climate breakdown and the, breakdown. Yeah, yeah 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 uh well, what has happened since since i first got interested in this in the 80s and now is there's been a huge uh, uh, in, in, increase in interest in, in veganism and in the plight of animals, particularly in veganism, particularly mm. because uh, of the health benefits. The, the, well, when I went vegan first, we, we, we didn't know anything about the health, the, the health benefits. We actually assumed yeah. it, was, it was bad for us. Right. But we were, we, were, we, were sort of, we, were, we were prepared to take the hit and we, we didn't, we were young. We didn't, we were, we were, we were, we were in, in, invincible then. Mm. But we we uh, we did like nu- nutritionally we didn't have the the knowledge that, that is available today about how good how actually good of a, a vegan diet is it's it's the only diet that has been proven to reverse heart disease so not just to stop heart disease but to actually reverse heart so no other diet uh, has been proven to do that the health benefits are are everywhere now it's really taken off it's taken off be- because of a self preservation instinct in in humanity we realize now that if we continue to abuse the planet that we're we're locked into a dysfunctional relationship with our planet we're, we're abusing our planet it's going to die and kill us with it mm. unless we radically change and our approach and how we deal with non-human animals is central to how we go forward from here so i never ever in my wildest dreams thought that i would be um seeing what, what i'm seeing now the huge increase in vegan so in in then in new zealand it's gone from being uh, maybe the amount of uh, the population who are vegan, maybe about one percent, to about twenty um, percent now. Twenty percent. So it's it's just exploded, especially amongst the youth. Yeah. So the the youth now are trailblazing. It, they they have the most to gain and the most to lose by 
by changing, right? So it, we, we, we can see how uh, the way we're, we're abusing animals has led to the breakdown of climate and to deforestation and to acidification of the ocean. We're basically killing ourselves. So now I say to people that meat isn't just murder, meat is suicide, because by pursuing this course, this course of action, the way we breed and kill animals and abuse nature, it's, it's, it's coming back to haunt us now. Mm. I, I always thought in the, in the back of mind, right, I'm, I'm, I'm really into this sort of anarchism and revolution and, and uh, animal rights and all that. It, it's always going to be a minority interest and it'll never go beyond that and it'll probably die out. I never thought I would see the day where it's like this now. It's a prominent part of political platforms. Uh, everyone's talking about it. Film stars and rock stars are going vegan. But when I, when I was going to it first, the only reference point, the only reference point at all that I could find was the inaugural punk movement. And that was always going to only attract a certain type of person. Now you can, there's so many different reference points across the social board, really, from famous tennis players to famous rock stars to politicians to everyone you can think of it. In every sphere of society, veganism is represented and is growing. I never thought I would see that. And I'm seeing that now because of the, the obviousness of the, the need to tend towards this. And the left, if the left are going to, the way the left will revive and survive is by adapting towards this new reality. It isn't just about working class and mass strikes and all the rest of that anymore. It's that plus a whole lot of other things and they need to face up to that. And it's, it's, it's a shame it's taken so long. If one looks at the green parties and the mm -hmm. green movements, where has mm -hmm. that sat in relation to that? Yeah, uh, so, so what's happened? So the, with, with the uh, green parties, it's uh, interesting here, the uh, green party are very prominent they're they're uh, sharing power with the with the labor party they, they aren't actually yeah. sharing power at the moment because the labor party is strong enough to be in but they're they're right. um they they have been in power before and they traditionally gain about eight or nine percent of the vote so they're they're there they're 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 prominent you know and they're persistent and they and they have a core following um part of the reason for their success as well as people sort of realizing that you can't keep abusing the environment and expect no comeback Mm. Uh, part of the reason for this for, for their success is that they've they've gone a bit mainstream, okay, and to the point where uh, one of their MPs left a few years ago, a guy called I think his name is Gareth Jones, because the the uh, the Green Party didn't have a strong animal policy, and they and they and they and they weren't pushing veganism the way the way he thought they should have been doing. So right. so, so he left and formed. Uh, he, he's an independent Green now, right. but the. The, the rise of the Green parties in Ireland as well, because they're are they sharing power now? I think. Yeah, yeah, they're part of the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael Green Party them, coalition. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's gone from being a very obscure party, uh, you know, that, that didn't get anywhere at all, to being mm. relatively prominent, overtaken. It seems by Sinn Fein. It seems everywhere. Oh yeah, been a, yeah, by Sinn Fein. And a point about them: a few days ago, they voted. Uh, Sinn Fein voted as a solid bloc yes to allowing fox hunting to continue in the north of ireland yeah so uh, i i don't know why they've done that i, I also Sinn Féin, I always uh, perceived them as being sort of a working class leftist party who who naturally would be almost naturally would be against something uh, upper class like like fox hunting but they mm -hmm. voted as a solid block to 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 retain that the dup actually some of their um mlps vo voted uh against the law so so i i would have assumed it to be the other way around yeah. I, would, I would have thought that Sinn Féin would, would have been naturally inclined to be a bit greener than they they seem to be being at home but yeah in terms of the green parties uh they, they've really seen uh, a rise in popularity i think in the next 20 or 30 years 
the green parties around the world will take the place of the labor parties uh, uh, the, the the position the traditional labor party type parties had mm. uh, for the last sort of sort of 100 years they 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 are becoming the new voice of the of the working class they're leaving behind the traditional labor parties that used to occupy that niche and mm. um, because those movements those old movements um, have no interest essentially the individuals have no interest or concept or reference points about these issues mm. uh, they mm. don't know how to start they they don't know how to talk about this they 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 were never brought up in this milieu basically mm. so um they're the old guard they're they're essentially conservatives now at this point and the the green movements that are coming up now will occupy that labor party that, that left wing niche but they will right. do they will do so by, by watering down their initial the initial green parties that came out of um, uh, Germany and, and mm. so forth were made of, up of black bloc anarchists and, yeah. and and people like that. And slowly they there was there was a split then between the relos and the the, the, the fundamentalists and all that. Yeah. And slowly these movements have become more establishment. This is totally inevitable. It, it isn't something that um, I get depressed about. It, it is the natural cycle, the natural evolution of, of any movement that starts off pretty radical, or mm. if it does start off radical. If 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 it's if it's around for a while, it will get absorbed into the mainstream yeah. and become more mainstream, and not like it used to be. But that's sort of a positive thing because it means that these ideas are being absorbed from the fringes in, in, into the into the mainstream now. And this is yeah. just a, it, it's it's it isn't good to be too precious about uh, movement specific movements or groups. The, 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 these are just tools that we use to try and push forward ideas, and and the the yeah. end, the end result of idea of these ideas. Say in my case is less people eating meat Meat. and dairy and and you know it isn't so much about the groups that prompt them to do that these groups will evolve and ride the crest of a wave and then pop and then become something else and it's it's just this cycle of that's yeah that's it's very fascinating sort of like it's very interesting hearing what you're saying there because in a way what you've got is a very optimistic vision which is or a positive vision maybe more than optimistic yeah yeah it's i was optimistic but i'm seeing now a mass movement against industrial capitalism around the world being spearheaded by young uh, young people the, the people who in 10 15 years time will will be leading the parties that are in charge of governments right so mm. we have a a youth that are that are radicalized by the destruction they see around them mm. and they will be a very different breed of politician greta thunberg when mm. she gets into power imagine what she's going to do you know and a thousand greta thunbergs imagine a thousand greta thunbergs that's what we need what is disappointing to see about the the climate movement now is, is it's dominated by the NGOs, mm. and all the NGOs will ever do is organise a march. Yeah. That's as far yeah. as they'll go. So you had up in Glasgow there a few months back. Yeah. Maximum radical peak is a march, right? Where is all the direct action for the planet? Where are all the angry people who are doing stuff for animals or for for the? Where, where are all the suffragettes? Where are all the anarcho punks? Where is uh, the uh, reaction to what's going on happening? Something beyond just tokenistic marches. Mm. Something big has to happen. We really need to, in terms of the movement, it really needs to uh, face up to its responsibilities. It's been a dismal failure. Greenpeace, Friends of the Earth, and so on. They have been a massive failure mm. in, in, by any stretch of the imagination. Industrial capitalism has continued to pollute more and more year on year, despite the, the evidence and the and the uh, that, that the likes of Greenpeace are producing about the effects of this, and the, and their type of action has been proven to be absolutely futile and impotent. Now, they've lost all edge, and they are as conservative as the Labour Party are now. Really, Green, 
Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth. And again, all they will ever do is put out scientific papers and organize a march or a tokenistic banner hanging or something. We, we, as a race, as, as a species, we really need to get a lot more serious and direct about our future here, or we're going to see this slip by and there is no second chance. And the next thousand generations will be spitting on our graves for, for what we didn't do. Yeah. And it is amazing to see. Imagine, imagine seeing a, 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 a mother watching its child being preyed upon and not doing anything about it, right? Imagine witnessing that and you're, and you're trying to get inside the, 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 mm. the, 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 the mind of the mother. It's, it's most important and hyped up instinct should be to protect its young. Mm. But if you're, if, if you're watching a mother allow its child to be dragged away by some other animal in the wild, mm. your, your impression of that mother is going to be pretty bad, right? She isn't doing anything to, to uh, protect her young. Us as a generation, we, we have both caused and are the cure of this problem, right? We have caused our generation and our fathers and mums and all that have caused most of the pollution and em emitted most of the emissions that, that, are, that are up in the atmosphere today have happened in the last sort of 40 or 50 years. Mm. So this is on our watch. This is, this is us doing this to our future and to our kids' future. So I don't see the climate movement acting as I think it needs to act uh, in order to get this job done and to push this over the line and to stop industrial capitalism in its tracks before it kills all of us and devours itself. So it, it's never been more serious, but in terms of the feisty, maybe militant reaction, there's nothing happening. Even mm. Extinction Rebellion only block things and then get arrested. Mm. There is no sort of proactive stopping of the machine. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, so I wonder where that's gone, because that was huge during the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s for the anti-globalization movement and mm. in all these different spheres. I'm not just talking about animals here, but mm. there was a big reaction going on, a big demand being made by uh, civil society. And yeah. that just went, you know, maybe it was September the 11th or it was a gradual fizzing out, but it's lost its balls and it needs to get its balls back. Maybe we should talk about the website, because I think the website is going to be of particular website. interest to people listening to this today. Okay, yes, yeah, so the uh, website has been sort of a pet project of mine for the last, um, since February of this year. I've been archiving and creating a narrative, a historical narrative, out of every and any bit of information that has ever been printed and made publicly available about the militant animal rights scene in Ireland from mm -hmm. since forever, right? So... Uh, I've accessed the Irish uh, newspaper archive, which gave me access to every single newspaper ever printed in Ireland. So every and any story ever carried in any Irish newspaper I've found and mm. collected. And also I made reference to all the uh, various animal liberation supporters group bulletins and newspapers that were, that were being produced in the UK that would also might have carried news about actions going on in, in Ireland. So basically the website is the is a collection of every and any incident connected with what you might call militant animal rights in Ireland uh, ever recorded. So, wow. uh, okay. so 2022 is the is 200 years since the passing of the first effective state legislation against violence against animals. So that was the 1822 Cruelty to Cattle Act that mm. was pushed through by Richard Martin, MP for Galway. In, 18, in 1822, he, he then set up the RSPCA in order to police that particular act. Yeah. So the RSPCA preceded the police force, the Metropolitan Police Force, by about 12 years. The animals, cattle specifically, had their own police force 
years before humans had a police force. And the humans police force, so Robert Peel based his, his structure of the police, the command structure and their uniforms on the RSPCA uniform and command structure. So the RSPCA were the first organization with a uniform that looks like the old fashioned bobbies, right? With a little helmet and a black uniform. Mm. And they would go around Smithfield meat market every day looking for any sign of um, undue abuse to the cattle. Obviously the cattle are being abused from the day they're born till the day they die, but anything that was considered to be uh, barbaric. Yeah. Then at that point, you know, yeah. they would then uh, try and prosecute those people. It took 12 years of trying before the first successful prosecution ever happened. So the law was passed and was being enforced by the RSPCA, but wasn't being taken seriously by anyone. So it would be, they were being laughed out of court, basically anytime they would try and take a case mm. against some guy who was hammering the fuck out of his, out of his cow at the, at the market for, for no reason. Um, they, they never won a case until, until um, uh, 12 years of trying. So it, it, even though the law changed, society's views obviously took a while to catch up and, yeah. and, still, and still are trying to catch up. But uh, R- Richard Martin was, was the first sort of hero of the animal rights movements worldwide, really. And it happens to be that he was an Irishman uh, from Galway. Um, so there was him. And then since then, there's been, uh, it, it's, it's ebbed and flowed, obviously, and mm. other political causes have taken the, more you know bigger precedent yeah 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 um but since the 1980s uh in line with uh the rise of the alf uh around the world but but particularly in the uk and in in rise with the the anarcho-punk movement which sort of fed a lot of recruits into the likes of the alf and the saboteurs since the 1980s a a new paradigm there was a there was a paradigm shift and there was um a, a serious organized attempt to uh, punch animal rights into the political framework and keep it there uh, using any means necessary short of violence against humans. So uh, the ALF uh, in Britain were, were really prominent in, uh, they were doing loads of arsons and uh, starting fires, they were the biggest fires seen, seen since World War II and so on, and really sort of um, grabbed the headlines and sent a shockwave through society. Their intention was exactly that, send shockwaves through society uh, alert society as to how bad animal abuse is and um, sabotage the machines of abuse and rescue animals from places of abuse. So um, I've documented all of those acts that, that took place in Ireland, whether they're acts by politicians pushing through laws, which is a form of direct action in itself, or uh, people uh, in civil society organizing their own groups and um, rescuing animals or trying to highlight the uh, animal rights issue uh, any way they can but I'm, I'm particularly interested in direct action so uh, yeah. it, I, I've, I've documented the, the, the rise of the ALS the uh, the history of the hunt saboteurs in Ireland and also the uh, various attempts at setting up cafes and restaurants that cater to vegans which is another form of direct action as yeah, well of course, yeah. so uh, and that actually started it actually started in the 19th century but again it petered out during the during the 20th century and now of course now you have lo- loads of places that mm. cater uh, for vegans or specifically to uh, vegans but I sort of I, I haven't included that yet the uh, website it's available now mm. um, but it isn't complete the idea is is to add more bits onto it at the end of each month and then by the end of 2022 we'll have a fairly comprehensive mm. history of 200 years of animal rights activism in Ireland I'll, I'm, I'm also looking for contributions from anyone who was involved in this movement 
anyone mentioned right. indirectly or directly on the website, I'm, invi I'm inviting them to get in touch with anything that they have, any stories, images, photographs, anything that, that they have that will contribute to this history, uh, I will then consider for uh, inclusion in the website. So as I say, by December 2022, we will have this big website containing everything that there is to know about this history for anyone to read. That's a fantastic project. It's, for for people yeah. who don't read the notes, uh, the URL is thehumanitytrigger.com as well. It's, uh... Yeah, sorry, I should have said yes. So it's thehumanitytrigger.com. The so do you want to talk about the name, by the way? Yeah, so uh, Richard Martin, the MP that set up the RSPCA that pushed through the 18th, where it all started, him, mm. is he had two nicknames. He had uh, Hair Trigger Martin, as in he, he, he had a very short temper and he would invite anyone who transgressed him to, to a duel. So this is in the this is in the gentleman's days. This is eighteen twenty-two. So he had fought over a hundred jewels, uh, including one because uh, this guy shot a friend of his dog, and he challenged him to a duel because of that. So Brilliant. the very first recorded action in defence of animals involved the use of guns, and that was the only time guns were ever pulled in defence of animals or in the name of animal rights, I suppose, mm. in the in the recorded history that, that we have. So it was done mm. by Richard Martin. So. Hair Trigger Martin was the name. So Trigger Martin, he was he was also known as Humanity Dick by King George the Fourth, who was a personal friend of Richard Martin's, wow. because he he was he was really concerned about animals. So there was Humanity Dick and Trigger Martin. And I just stuck them two together, so you get Humanity Trigger, and yeah. it's sort of punky as well. So you get the sort of you know Johnny Rotten or yes. two things, you know, humane and a trigger. So, uh, yeah, it's that it's sort of it's it's in remembrance of Richard Martin and it's a pretty cool name as well. Uh, I wanted to sort of present this history uh, not in a dry, boring, maybe academic way. I wanted it to be mm. lively, interesting, humorous, mm. because there was a place for humor in this as well. It's sort of dark humor, but it's there. Mm. And so I wanted I wanted it to be entertaining as well as educational and accessible to anyone interested in history, not yeah. just the it's very visual as well. I mean, the whole site, it's really appealing visually and, and with very striking imagery, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah there, 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 there are some amazing photographs of this. Uh, if you bear in mind the issue concerned and the amount of drama involved in this, there, there, there's, there's lots of good photo opportunities mm. uh, to get people at their best and worst. And um, yeah, uh, yeah there, there are some really good images online. And I've, I've uh, so I've done a lot of really good photographs. And I've added in my own artwork as well, which I create out of flour and sliced up fruit and veg. Yeah, that's very striking. That's um, just to add to the, again, to sort of uh, get away from the sort of uh, traditional vegan imagery of, of, of rabbits and, and grass growing <laughs> and stuff like that. I wanted yeah. to bring in a bit more abrasive, something that sort of re reflected the content of the website. Uh, yeah. And not just repeat the same old sort of hippie images of veganism. And, and it'll be a project that's, I mean, you're saying like by the end of 2022, you hope to have a very cohesive overview of the area. But I presume from there on out, in a sense, it could become a clearinghouse for yes. materials, um, yeah. stories, yes, yeah, narratives. It, it, there is, there is, yeah, it, it can it, it can really expand. Um, for 2022, I wanted to keep it focused on uh, the the history of of Ireland's. Start, direct action movement for animals mm. but at, after that after 2022 uh, if i keep the site going i want to add bits onto it and bring in animals and isms for instance i want to talk about the relationship marxism had yeah. with animals fascism had with animals which is fascinating and very dark mm. and 
not at all what you would think. Um, uh, so the relationship that all these different extremes and the points in the middle have with animals and animal rights, and I want to expand on that. Mm. And um, uh, also maybe go into the history of, of animal rights similarly in, in New Zealand, because I'm living here now, and maybe to sort yeah. of uh, expand on that and then and then compare the two, because they're, they're both very similar size and populations and demographic and all that. Um, so uh, yeah, the the uh, I want to expand on this um, after 2022, and as I say, I'm I'm looking for for, for positive contributions from anyone and everyone who was in, who was involved in the scene then and now to, to help me build it up and to get different perspectives and stories in there as well. Yeah, that it's it's a fantastic project. I mean, the site itself is a marvel to read and to go through. And it, I mean, if this is the beginning, where it's going to be in a year's time is going to be. Remarkable. I hope so. Yeah, I, ho- I hope I hope it can be much bigger and r- with some really good quality content. And I want it to be a place where other, where other you know, it, it isn't it isn't about me. It's it's about this history. So yeah. uh, I wanted to put it out there and and to and to and to see where it goes. And hopefully it'll it'll get a bit of interest because, as I say, it, it, I'm not aiming it specifically at the at the vegan or animal rights community. I want it to be accessible to anyone. That's that's why I wanted it it, it to be a bit funny and. Yeah. Uh, striking with the images and all that and and just to, to to just to draw people in because reading a diary of actions can be a bit like reading a phone book and that d- does a real disservice to the actual excitement contained within all these words and, uh, and 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 what they're telling you but there's so much going on i can't go into narrative detail about every single instance so i have to present it all in bullet points but um Elsewhere in the site, I do go into specific stories about the the rise and fall of the ALF in Belfast, for instance, or my yeah. my, my own engagement in the hunt saboteurs here and in uh, in Ireland and in the UK. Also, uh, it is a story about the history of Ireland's. Um, it, it's it's a story of, of what happened in Ireland, but what happened in Ireland was hugely influenced by what was going on in the UK and mm. be it through the punk movement or to the animal rights movement generally. So there's a cross correlation between. All those things. The Irish activists were being inspired by what was going on in the UK. Also, a lot of Irish uh, activists were leaving Ireland and joining these groups over in the UK. So there was a good representation of the Irish diaspora in these groups, civil rights groups and animal rights groups in the UK and elsewhere. So it was a cross-pollination sort of thing going on, you know. And you can't really tell one story without referring at least in part to the other island's story. So, uh, so I go, so the so the website goes into detail about. Yeah, the, the history of the ALF, the origins of that, which is obviously a UK-based thing. So is the Hunt Sabs. Uh, and so is the anarcho-punk thing, you know? So it, it all yeah. came from there, you know? Mm. So it's a fascinating project. I think everybody who sees it's going to be really, really interested in it. And as you say, you encourage people to get involved and to... Yes, send, to and yeah. send stuff in, yeah. Listen, I think this is a perfect point to end it on because it's, the story continues, as it were, from yes. here on yeah. out. And, uh, yes, it does. And just to say thank you so much, Mark, for coming and talking to us uh, this morning for you, but this evening yeah. for us because you're. Yeah, I've got, have, I've got to have my, my breakfast soon. Look, it's it's uh, Listen, it's been a, so amazing much. to talk to you guys. Yeah, no, it's, it's it's been really good. It's been a good opportunity to get the story across and to plug the website. And I hope everyone goes onto it and has a good look. 